The Guardian. Hello again, this is Michael White with Guardian Daily. I'm at Westminster where Sir Alan Budd, the new man in charge of independent budget forecasting, has just revised down the old Labour government's growth figures, but he's also revised down the borrowing figures as well. A mixed message we'll hear from Alistair Darling, the man who set those figures up just a few months ago. If you run around saying to people it's all terrible and the country's uh, in huge difficulties, you can't be surprised if a businessman or a manufacturer uh, decides, well, perhaps I'll hold off making an investment. Perhaps I won't hire an extra uh, couple of people to help me because, you know, the government's telling me how bad things are. I'm John Dennis at The Guardian's HQ. A Guardian investigation reveals today a huge disparity in NHS death rates. Those hospitals that do more of particular procedures get better at them. And we'll hear from South African football fans in Soweto. This is a different environment. Most people couldn't afford to go to stadiums, so they arranged a, a big screen for us to watch it. This is Michael White uh, in Westminster. Sir Alan Budd has just uh, exercised his new role as the man in charge of uh, the Independent Office of Budget Responsibility, separate from the Treasury, to take the figures and, as George Osborne, the new Chancellor, likes to put it, make the budget fit the figures, not the other way around. He's revised down the uh, growth projections. Clearly, European economies are much more worried than they were a few months ago. The emphasis is not on Keynesian spending to get us out of trouble, but it's on uh, retrenchment, the avoidance of sovereign debt, the Greek problem uh, which we've seen. But uh, I'm in luck here because I've just spotted Alistair Darling, former Chancellor. We're going to ask him what his take on it. He's pretty cross about what he regards as an exaggeration of the problem. A week ago, David Cameron said that the borrowing figures were worse than he thought. Now, it's turned out today, as I always suspected, they are better. Uh, How much better for they're people? About £10 billion better, and over the next uh, few years, over £20 billion better. Uh, so that is a completely different story to the one that David Cameron was telling last week. And uh, the political cover he was seeking uh, for some of the things I guess they're going to do next week in relation to putting out VAT or cutting public spending, well, that's gone. I think the second thing that Alan Budd was saying today in relation to growth is that uh, he's being more cautious. He says mainly due to recent events, and I suspect that's largely to do to what's happening in Europe, where I've been saying for some time that I'm very, very worried uh, that with governments taking so much money out of their economies, I just don't see where the demand is going to come from uh, for goods and services, and that, that bodes ill for the future. In other words, your uh, projections for growth were, in other circumstances, pre-Greece, before the sovereign debt crisis in the Eurozone. Everybody's now battening down the hatches and your fear is we're not going to get the growth, which is the main thing to get us out of the debt problem. Is that about right? What, what you, I'm very clear about is that if you don't get growth, you'll never get your borrowing and your debt down. Look at Japan, for example. Japan for 10 years has had pretty sclerotic growth uh, and they now have a massive debt problem, far, far greater than anything that, uh, that, that we've got. Uh, but the, 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 the thing that should worry people is that if Alan Budd is right and his forecast is at 2.6%, just over 2.5%. That's not very much just coming out of recession. 
And if the Tories and the Liberals decide to take a lot of money out of the economy, either by cutting public spending or by putting taxes up, or more likely both of these things, the risk is you derail the recovery uh, and you get people who are out of work for longer than is necessary, you end up, end, end up cutting again because you can't make up the numbers. But, but their theory is that public expenditure and debt and higher taxation crowds out uh, the private sector recovery. They, they said that 20 years ago and they're back saying it now. But there's no evidence that private sector uh, investment is being crowded out, far from it. Uh, there are signs that some of it's coming back, but it's not coming back in anything like the way that uh, we would want. And part of the reason is that if you run around saying to people it's all terrible and the country's uh, in huge difficulties, you can't be surprised if a businessman or a manufacturer uh, decides, well, perhaps I'll hold off making an investment. Perhaps I won't hire an extra uh, couple of people to help me because you know the government's telling me how bad things are. This all becomes self-fulfilling. I would like to see more private sector investment. I want to see public um, uh, sector borrowing coming down, but you've got to do it in a way that the two complement each other. You start taking away the public expenditure and you allow for the uh, private sector investment to come back. Last point, uh, you were reported in the Financial Times on Saturday as having um, discovered that borrowing was not as bad as you feared uh, uh, earlier this year, but uh, deciding not to tell the Prime Minister because you felt he'd probably want to spend the money and you wanted to get this borrowing down. Can you confirm that one or was it newspapers making it up as they so often do? Well, I'd hardly believe that could ever happen. Uh, look, uh, Gordon and I had many, many uh, discussions about what uh, the public um, uh, sector finances and what borrowing may like. Uh, just, I am naturally cautious and I was very cautious and I think my experience was you should be cautious about these things. Uh, but I'm glad to see that borrowing is coming in at less than I forecast. Ed Bull says uh, you should have ruled out a VAT increase before the general election as uh, part of his leadership campaign. Well, I don't have a leadership campaign to run, uh, so... Uh, I'm quite sure about that, I... I'm absolutely sure, and happily nominations are shut, so that's the least of my problems. For the last four elections now, uh, we have fought on the basis that we weren't ruling out uh, any extension to the rate of VAT, uh, and we did it on the three elections prior to the last election. Uh, I think we're right to do it this time, because you're absolutely daft to box yourself in in that way, uh, and, uh, you know, that's my judgment, and I'm sticking to it. Labour governments never raise that. Uh, Tory governments always do. You go for other forms of taxation historically, that's about right, isn't it? And they'll do it again this time, I suspect. My guess is the Tories and Liberals will put that up and they'll put it up substantially next week. That was Alistair Darling, uh, firing on all four cylinders and looking tanned and relaxed after 13 years in office without a day off. To add to the political turbulence, uh, Nick Clegg, the Deputy Prime Minister, used a speech in London this afternoon to say that it was, quote, the uh, progressive thing to do to uh, cut uh, the deficit and to get down that debt. No apologies from him, so that'll stir things up and annoy uh, ex-Labour ministers who think uh, he's done a bit of a U-turn there. Labour's attempt to use today's OBR report as an excuse for inaction would be a monumental mistake. Instead, the OBR's independent analysis paints a stark picture. We're now facing the highest budget deficit in Europe, the highest deficit in the G20. Borrowing this year will be 10.5% of GDP, with debt topping 60%. As we always suspected, and as confirmed by this report, the downturn did more damage to the economy than Labour admitted. My party, the Liberal Democrats, has always said that we, we would not shrink from this task that we would be bold and honest as we cut public spending 
and that we would only start once the time was right. But we've also always been clear that the single most important factor for determining that moment is market confidence. But make no mistake, this is not a task we relish, nor was it our choice. This is the legacy that we, as a new government, and we, the British people, were left. Left by a government bankrupt of ideas and very nearly bankrupt. It is the only way we can get our public finances on a sound footing. And this is the absolute crucial point. To do anything else would not only be irresponsible, it would be a betrayal of our progressive values. Nick Clegg talking in London today. Now, the other thing that's caught uh, our attention here today is the announcement by David Cameron that Lord Young of Grafham, heavens above, he's nearly 80, used to be a minister under Margaret Thatcher. Uh, Lord Young is going to uh, undertake a review of health and safety as it affects the workplace and the school place and other aspects of our life. Much mocked health and safety. It has its passionate supporters and passionate detractors. Uh, let's see who we can find. Jerry Sutcliffe, former employment minister who introduced the corporate manslaughter bill, became the act in the last parliament. Uh, what's your reaction to the idea of Lord Young giving this a working over? I want to know what the motivation is. I think we've got to be very careful about striking the right balance between genuine health and safety issues and the culture that's developed about risk aversion. So there are some silly examples of people being stopped doing things because of health and safety. Example? When you well, the, you know, this idea about flying flags or things that, to me, are not common sense as opposed to real issues that affect people's ability to do their jobs or be in a safe set, uh, set of circumstances. some of those things, the conkers and the slides and the kids and the goggles, are they urban myths or are some of them real? I think it's, some of them are real and, and sadly because of lack of proper interpretation of what the rules mean. The rules are about protecting people from potential accidents or unsafe working conditions um, and I think in some cases it's been taken a step too far but what I don't want to see is uh, legislation removed that in you know proper circumstances saves people's lives. Jerry Sutcliffe there, the uh, former employment minister in the Labour government. Remember David Cameron likes to uh, poke fun at uh, uh, health and safety. It's a favourite party conference target of top Tories like himself. Always get an easy laugh out of the Conkers story or some other uh, folly of an overzealous uh, local authority. Uh, but uh, Tory MPs really mean it. Here's Bernard Jenkin. Uh, MP for Colchester North? Well, absolutely the right man for the job. He showed some enthusiasm for this role before the election, and uh, I'm very glad he's... he touted for it? Is that um, what that's your word, not mine. And I'm sure he hasn't... Uh, and, and nothing as vulgar as payment is being made. Uh, 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 the, the word touted would suggest. Oh. <laughs> but, 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 but why do you feel that this is a real issue in, in the sort of working lives of your constituents? Where's it gone wrong? Well, uh, uh, small businesses... Uh, particularly, but also charities, even local authorities Example. and parish councils. Oh, cancelling the bonfire night because of health and safety. Schools having to go through ludicrous checks before running school trips. We all know why these regulations have come into place, because accidents have occurred and people say this must never be allowed to happen again. But as Shadow Transport Secretary, when all the we had that spate of railway disasters... It was very instructive to compare railway safety with civil aviation safety. A much better record on safety, but without the same sort of anxiety and panic 
uh, that over-regulation creates, and very often over-regulation corrupts the safety culture anyway. But both the two you ex examples you cite, rail and air, are much, much safer than motor cars or bicycles. Absol absolutely, and uh, safety is as much about perception as about reality. Uh, a lot of people who drive cars or walk as pedestrians or even ride bicycles don't like flying in aeroplanes when they're far, far, far safer flying in an aeroplane than anything else they can choose to do. And it's very difficult to bring uh, um, uh, a statistical and scientific rationality to this. Civil aviation has done it very well. The oil industry actually has done it very well, obviously not in America, but certainly in the North Sea. And all this needs to be processed. It's not about just reducing risk for reducing risk sake. It's about managing risk, managing safety, so that people feel that rational decisions are being made. Bernard Jenkin there, newly appointed chair of the Public Administration Select Committee, the one which was run with some distinction by Labour's Tony Wright before the election when he retired. Well, there we are. Parliament's gearing up for the emergency budget uh, next Tuesday, June the 22nd. But this Tuesday, uh, tomorrow, it'll be tackling the Savile Inquiry's long-awaited report. Almost £200 million worth of expenditure, most of it on lawyers, I'm sure, 12 years after it was set up by Tony Blair as part of the healing process of the Good Friday Agreement. I have to say, in private conversations with... Um, uh, former ministers and MPs close to the Northern Ireland situation great deal of worry about this if, as Henry MacDonald reported in Friday's Guardian, there's um, a question of unlawful killing uh, being returned by uh, Saville. Will any of the soldiers involved or even their commanding officers be prosecuted? And if they are, uh, will people in the Protestant community say, well, if they're going to be prosecuted, we want known IRA killers to be prosecuted, not just the on-the-runs against which there's evidence, but some people uh, in public life, some of them holding elective office uh, against whom uh, cases can be alleged. It's a really tricky one, and uh, we'll be covering it all tomorrow. Back to Guardian HQ and John Dennis. Thanks, Mike. We'll have reaction from our team in Londonderry, at Westminster, and here at the Guardian's HQ. It'll be published slightly later than usual, in the early evening, at guardian.co.uk slash audio. My name's John Dennis. Still to come, Soweto's passion as the host nation South Africa competes in the World Cup. First, a Guardian investigation reveals today that NHS patients having vascular surgery are more likely to die if they're being treated in smaller hospitals. Our Freedom of Information trawl reveals that NHS doctors don't know how well they're performing or whether they're more or less likely than their colleagues to kill or to cure their patients. Our health editor, Sarah Bosley, says there's a widespread failure to collect the information. It tells us that we've got massively variable mortality rates um, in vascular surgery around the country. But actually a lot of the findings hold true for other disciplines, which is that really surgeons and other doctors are not keeping good data on the outcome for their patients, whether their patients recover, whether they have side effects, whether there are complications, and in some cases whether they die. So with the vascular surgeons, we've discovered that the result of that is that doctors themselves don't know how good they are, they can't compare themselves with other doctors, and the patients don't know how good their surgeon is either. 
So the result of that, as I say, is, is massively variable mortality rates. In some hospitals, they're lower than 2%. The worst one we found was 29%. And there were about 10 that were more than 10%. Now, that's against an average in our findings of about 4%. And the European average is 2.8%. Why should it be that uh, vascular surgery patients are more likely to die in smaller hospitals? What happens is a, what they call a volume outcome effect. Now, this has been noticed in some other areas as well, such as trauma care and stroke care and actually cancer. So those hospitals that do more of particular procedures get better at them. So in the case of vascular surgery, it's not just the surgeon, it's also the rest of the surgical team. And it's also the facilities they have because they're taking more cases. So their intensive care department is more geared up, better geared up to it. But one way or the other, because they see more cases, they're more skilled. And they also seem to adopt the modern technologies, be more willing to adopt modern technologies. And there is a new keyhole procedure, actually, that really does bring the mortality rate down in some cases. So it seems that the more cases you do, the safer you're likely to be as a hospital. So we found generally where you've got a lot of cases taking place, as in some of the big tertiary centres in London, like St George's and Guy's and St Thomas's and in Leicester and other places, they have much lower mortality rates of around 2% compared with the little ones, which might have 10% or even more. And yet the coalition government has halted the previous Labour administration's policy of closing down the smaller hospitals. Well, um, a lot of people will be hoping that what we found will feed into that very debate because uh, there are a lot of doctors in, um, uh, who, who really do believe that we need to close the smaller units and concentrate um, on those larger units where people are more skilled. And as I say, not just for vascular surgery, but also for things like stroke and trauma care and cancer. And in London, a whole a London-wide reorganisation was underway, um, or was about to get underway, when the election occurred. And that's been put on hold. So some of these small vascular centres were actually due to close and uh, the patients would have been sent to the larger units instead. Same was going on for stroke and trauma care. Patient choice is uh, at the centre of the the coalition government's um, NHS policy. It was also at the centre of the previous uh, government's policy. Um, And yet, you know, when you look at this this data, it wasn't in the public domain. It's very hard for patients to make a, a good choice. In fact, there isn't data, really. The NHS Choices website where you can look for to look for the hospital that you might want to choose for a particular procedure, uses um, administrative data that's called HES, based on hospital episode statistics. Um, that's very well known to be unreliable. So when you're looking at that website, you're not necessarily getting the right picture of the hospital where you might be interested in being treated. And that's quite alarming, uh, we think. You know, patients can't know, in fact. The, this is a very big problem. Sarah Bosley. World Cup, World Cup, every four years it's the World Cup, World Cup. If you dump a cup of ground straight in the build-up, build then we'll up. love it when you score a goal. Ooh, did you see that? World Cup, World Cup. It might all end in tears or a headbutt. Head you can follow all the blogging on your laptop. laptop. From Slovenia to Slovakia, from Nigeria to the Côte d'Ivoire. Ooh, ah, Côte d'Ivoire. The Guardian and Observer, packed with World Cup coverage every day. 
one of the biggest talking points of the tournament so far has been the outpouring of emotion for the host nation's first match. There was excitement all over South Africa in official fan zones showing the match on large screens, but the atmosphere was at its most intense at an unofficial screening at Thokosa Park in Soweto. Here, fans from Thokosa take us through the day in what was billed as the most important day for South Africa since Nelson Mandela's release from prison in 1990. This is a different environment. Most people couldn't afford to go to stadiums. So they arranged a, a big screen for us to watch it. This area, this is where Mandela uh, was born and bred. So he's familiar with this place. We are in Soweto, yes, he knows where we are now. Beer and soccer goes hand in hand, you understand? So there's no way we can't drink and enjoy soccer, you see. And it's good that we've got people from London to support us. Instead of writing bad things about South Africa, at least now you experience that there's no crime, there are no monkeys here. It's just people like any other country, you know. It's nice in South Africa. We are a world today. The world is watching us. We are proud. <laughs> minutes of the performance. Well, I have to say, we had our fair share. Mexico had their own, but what can I say? It's still nil-nil. It's anyone's game at this moment. Eh? Well, they both played well. Uh, Mexico, I must say, is looking very dangerous. I must say so. Well, I think our goalie, Kunwe, has been fantastic. I'm nervous, but I hope we're still going to win. Oh, it's been a very good match, I would say, yes. South Africa's looking very good, and I think they're going to win this match, yes. I don't think so. It will be a draw, my friend. Even Mexico is a tough match. They are very highly qualified. They will defend it. But I think it's a draw at the end of the game. We'll see. Yeah, I'm nervous because it's our first game. So we have to win it to show that uh, we're capable of taking it next time. But we'll see uh, how the second half is going to go. <laughs> South Africa is fun. I just see the goal going in. No, I'm very excited and nothing to say about it. I'm happy at the end of the day. At this moment, I can see the game is up to us, no, and we are going further with it. We are going very far. We are winning this game. I'm definitely sure. It's so sad. It's so sad. I don't feel okay. Oh. There's God. 
Amara, why? Why? It's very disappointing, honestly. It's very disappointing. I didn't expect something like this. I thought they're gonna win. But it's okay. The time is still on. The game is over now. I'm happy. And I can't even explain myself. Yeah, but Fana Fana will never lose and we love them, although it's a draw. This is our love. We're proud of you, boys. This is your best boys. No, yeah. we don't mind. It's okay. It's better than losing, you know. I'm not upset. There's an improvement actually from Bafana Bafana because number one, Mexico is one of the countries that are rated very high in terms of their number. And Bafana Bafana, the actual fact, they did not qualify for the World Cup, but since they're the hosting country, therefore automatically they qualified. So they were playing with the big giants. So the performance was excellent as well. So we're actually delighted and overwhelmed with that performance. Yeah, although we missed a lot of chances, but the game was fantastic, man. That's all I can say for now. South African football fans talking to Peter Sale. Guardian Daily was produced today by Phil Maynard in Westminster and here at the Guardian's HQ by Tim Maybe. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world.